Hello and welcome to Guidepost, episode 20. I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of the CRISPR Journal, established in 2018, publishing research and commentary on all aspects of CRISPR biology and genome editing technology and applications. And I'm also the author of Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing, published by Pegasus Books and available in paperback. Our guest on this episode of Guidepost is the American anthropologist Eben Kirksey. Eben is an associate professor at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, and the author of The Mutant Project, published by St. Martin's Press in 2020. Eben is one of many authors over the past year or so who have explored different aspects of the CRISPR revolution, but Eben's book stands out from the others for the insights he supplies by virtue of his firsthand research and reporting in China in the wake of the CRISPR baby scandal of 2018. But his interest in genome editing and especially its impact on patients is much broader and predates that momentous event. Reviewing Kirksey's book in MIT Technology Review, Ben Holbert said, Kirksey's attention to human beings as more than engineerable bodies and to the desires that drive the imperative to edit invites us to recognize the extraordinary peril of reaching into the gene editing toolkit for salvation. Eben Kirksey joins us from Berlin, where he's on sabbatical. Eben, thanks so much for coming on Guidepost. Great to see you. Really glad to be here. I was going back over some old uh, book reviews, uh, and two in particular stood out. Uh, John Dupre in the LA Review of Books, and uh, Ben Hulbert's uh, review in MIT Technology Review, not only because they loved your book, The Mutant Project, but because they both thought it was better than Isaacson's and mine. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for coming on the program. <laughs> no, and, and I, I should say, I also really got a lot out of your book too. So it's, it's a delight to be in conversation. Where do we find you today? Your academic home is in Melbourne, Australia, I understand. Yeah, that's right. I'm part of the Alfred Deakin Institute, which is a, a large group of uh, humanities and social science re researchers. Um, remarkably, uh, we're all research only. So it's a, a, a very large group of people just getting to write books and think thoughts. And right. uh, how, how long have you been in Australia and have you become an Aussie Rules fan yet? <laughs> <laughs> not, not an Aussie Rules man yet, but uh, off and on since uh, 2012. I initially moved to Sydney okay. and uh, then took up a position, uh, the research only position in Melbourne. Okay. Uh, we'll get to your excellent book, The Mutant Project, uh, in a few minutes. But first, yeah, tell us about your area of research. I'm not sure I've ever interviewed an anthropologist before. Yeah, so, you know, when, when I was an undergraduate, I took uh, cultural anthropology courses and biology courses and really um, wanted to do both. I, I did a double major as an undergrad at this small school in Florida called New College. And uh, in those days, I, I found that the ways of integrating those two disciplines were really unsatisfying. I mean, this was the era of the science wars when everyone was competing to say, you know, this is nature, no, this is nurture. And I really found the terms of those debates uninteresting, but I was still fascinated by biology and, um, you know, ended up becoming an anthropologist. And uh, yeah, there, there's a long line of anthropologists that study science. And um, I'd point to Bruno Latour as, as among the first ones in 1979. Um, he was hanging out at the Salk Institute in um, Southern California, 
And um, yeah, basically, you know, we're, we're part of a, a broader group of social scientists that are interested in um, understanding how, you know, natural sciences intersect with society. Um, but I've also been, you know, in, independent of the CRISPR stuff before I got involved in that, I became really interested in using anthropological methods to look at places where nature and culture meet. So mostly this is what you would call skin out biology. So, you know, looking at, for example, um, there's wild monkeys in Florida. So I went to study, um, you know, how monkeys and people interact in this place where they're not supposed to be. I, I studied, you know, not only the, the histories of these monkeys, um, some connected to the Tarzan um, uh, film enterprise, uh, other histories going back some 80 years. Yeah. Um, but more interestingly, I, I was just, you know, trying to get a sense of how uh, people and monkeys were negotiating a, a shared landscape. Okay. And uh, you, you are a previously published uh, book author. Tell us about the first book that you, you published. Yeah, so the first book uh, was nothing about biology. That's called Freedom in Entangled Worlds. So that's uh, my, uh, uh, you know, what was my doctoral work in, mm. in Indonesia, in West Papua, basically about an indigenous political movement. And mm. um, then I went to Latin America, where I did research for emerging ecologies. So it was basically a project that started out um, at the Smithsonian Tropical Institute uh, uh, in, in Panama. And I, I was really interested in, you know, histories of science, but also, um, you know, rethinking um, how conservation might be understood. So okay. if, um, you know, previously we thought about conservation as a project of restoring a past, um, you know, I, I found it, it's really hard to know about recent, you know, recent past, much, much less like paleontological pasts. Yeah. Um, so, so I was basically interested in studying the ways that people interact with other species in real time, but also, you know, what kinds of shared futures might they have? Okay. How did you first start, or when did you first start paying attention to CRISPR? Uh, it was actually kind of on accident. I was, I was teaching at Princeton. Um, I was teaching a course uh, on human nature, looking mm -hmm. at all the different ways that um, the new biology are changing our understanding of what it means to be human, everything uh -huh. from epigenetics to the microbiome. And an artist friend of mine um, told me about the summit that was happening in Washington, D.C. So he scored me an invitation to the summit. And, um, you know, I basically found myself there um, and, in, you know, CRISPR was what a lot of people were talking about at the summit, but actually there I got more interested in uh, work that had been done with zinc fingers, a, a, an earlier tool that really works uh, much in the same way. You know, yeah. at that point in, in 2015, CRISPR seemed to be something just in the realm of speculation. And, you know, at, at that point I was, I was thinking, you know, I'm less interested about these possible futures, but let's let's look at these actual clinical outcomes. Okay. Zinc finger experiments. And that's how I kind of like backed into CCR5, the gene okay. at the center of the, the yeah. Hajan Bay controversy. Yeah. So I, I basically ended, ended up interviewing all these patients who had signed up for a gene editing experiment with Sangamo, um, the company that had the um, zinc fingers and found that some of them got real medical benefit from having their white blood cells taken out of their bodies, um, you know, edited so that they yeah. 
you know, couldn't be infected with, with um, HIV anymore and then put back. Um, it wasn't a cure to HIV, which is what right. Sangamo set out to do, but right. uh, at least for some of the patients, the ones who weren't getting all the benefits from the normal an antiviral med medications, like those, th that was the group that really seemed to have, have a lot of success with that earlier experiment. And these interviews were just, you were thinking part of just an, uh, you know, you, you get an academic paper out of this. This wasn't necessarily for a book. No, I was working on a book. And, and at that point, I thought that it was going to be a book about, you know, the microbiome, epigenetics, all these other, um, you know, uh, new biologies. And I was uh -huh. doing interviews in labs that were doing that kind of work as well. But then I, I came to zero in, you know, as, as CRISPR moved from kind of the realm of like speculation and hope and might we say hype yeah. into you know actual clinical applications that's that's when i started focusing on on, on crispr a lot too so in uh november 2018 we both headed towards uh hong kong and even the organizers in advance were saying this is probably going to be a fairly boring um conference so what made you i mean i guess hong kong from australia is a it's a it's a, a puddle jump almost um uh why why were you intent on being there uh, well i was invited so i was i was speaking on on the ethics panel oh that's a good reason <laughs> so um and i was actually coming from california so i was coming from interviews with some of these hiv positive uh ah, okay. community members who'd just been been edited, um, you know, and hearing their stories. And, right. uh, you know, I'd, I'd sent off my PowerPoint presentation, um, like all the, I think I was a little bit late, but, um, you know, I'd already prepared to talk. And then, you know, as I'm checking into the hotel, the ground shifted and uh, had to completely rethink what my presentation at the summit was going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Did, were you, did you hear about Herjan Kui's exploits from Twitter or were people so talking was about in, it? In... I just checked into the hotel and yeah. um, I was in the elevator and, and there was somebody else who looked like they might be, um, uh, you know, going to the conference. Um, I, I, I later realized it was Robin Level Badge. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey, are you, you know, are you here for yeah. the summit? And um, you know, in the space of about five seconds or, you know, 10, uh, however long it takes to get up to, I think it was on the third or fourth floor. Yeah. And, you know, Robin told me what was going on. So right. I, Robin I Lovell Badge from the Crick Institute, one of the organizers of the Hong Kong Genome Ethics Conference. And of course, he played a central role in the drama that unfolded over the next uh, few days. Um, so you were giving a talk, but of course, all eyes were on, you know, I think the set day two of the, uh, of the meeting when for a while, it wasn't clear if Her Jan Kui was even going to show up. We'd all seen the YouTube videos and read Antonio Regalado's explosive story in, uh, uh, MIT tech review. And then of course, confirmed and extended by, uh, Marilyn Marchioni's, uh, Associated Press, reporting and inside access to uh, He Jiankui or JK's group um, in, in Shenzhen. Um, so talk, talk us through your reaction is, of course, there was an hour session. I think you asked one of the questions following He Jiankui's presentation. So what were you thinking as he, in stunned silence, as he set up, walked up on stage and uh, began to try to defend his work? Yeah, it, it actually just popped up as a Facebook memory. My, my question <laughs> to, to JK three years ago on, on yeah. this day, um, 
And, you know, I was really focused on, on the ethics and, um, you know, uh, it, it was clear that something dramatic had happened, but, but I was worried that um, attention was, was being taken away from the actual human individuals um, who were at the center of the story. Um, yeah. You know, these, these two twins that were born and, and the parents that had signed up for, for the experiment. Yeah. And it was becoming the spectacle. You know, at, at this point you had, um, you know, some people in the press commenting on how monstrous the experiment was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by extension, you know, he, he was called the Chinese Frankenstein. And um, I, sort of the indirect allegation was that these babies were monsters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question I asked, I, it was a two-part question. Um, I, I asked him to explain more about the participant consent process. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'd read the document online, mm -hmm. um, but didn't have a clear sense of what had actually happened in terms of the social interactions and the, you know, what, what actually took place. Mm. And then I also, also asked him about the future. I asked him about his, his responsibility as he understood it towards, towards these babies that had been born. Mm. And uh, in, in rewatching my Facebook memory, um, uh, he totally dodged. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he talked about um, in his response, um, basically about the potential of this technology to help people with genetic diseases. Interestingly, this is a, a separate application in many ways from how he tried to use it. And, you know, said, if we have these powerful tools, it would be unethical um, to use, to not use them. Yeah. Um, but for me, that, that was sidestepping, you know, some of the important ethical concerns. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I was also thinking about the earlier experiment, about the CCR5 experiment mm -hmm. that Sangamo did, and some of the ways that that went wrong. And uh, when we had our panel, our, our panel was um, right after the, the session mm -hmm. where you, you had 1.8 million people watching in real time. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Han, I think, yeah, maybe 30 people. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. And I'm, but, you know, from, from the main stage, I was, when I was up there, um, I, I started talking about some of the ethical missteps that Sangamo made in their earlier CCR5 trial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of it was a scandal. Um, one of their scientists went to jail for insider trading after, um, you know, basically they had very interesting results. This subset of HIV um, long-term survivors, um, they're called immunological non-responders. They basically had their immune systems repaired. Um, their, their white blood cell counts were in the normal range for the first time in their lives since getting, you know, HIV positive diagnoses some 20, 30 years earlier. Mm. So this was a profoundly meaningful thing for the, this patient community. Um, so, you know, one of the key scientists, Winston Tang, told, I think it was his brother-in-law and golfing buddy about these findings. The stock price shot up. Um, the company made about a billion dollars in market capitalization. And then the stock tanked after, you know, uh, the SEC did an investigation and Winston Tang went to jail. And then the new CEO who took over um, basically decided that HIV was no longer a lucrative part of the portfolio. So mm. they took advantage of the lessons learned from this experiment in the abstract, but then didn't um, keep pursuing these um, clinical applications that mm. 
in the minds of these long-term survivors who are very articulate about, um, you know, they understand the science. They, they've been, you know, reading the primary literature since, mm. since the early 90s. And um, so, so I talked about that from uh, the main stage of, mm-hmm. of um, the summit in Hong Kong. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that led the lab to open up to me when I reached out with a cold call. Um, uh-huh. it, was, it was several months later. I mean, I, 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 went, to, I went to Shenzhen. I went um, to some other facilities um, in mainland China right after the summit. Um, it, was, it was my second visit to Shenzhen. Yeah. Um, but I really saved um, sort of the harder core, you know, deeper dive into the particularities of this experiment until the controversy had settled a few right. months later. Right. So, of course, just I don't think this audience needs reminding, but the, the Sankamo CCR5 work was obviously somatic uh, genome editing, and obviously He Jiankui was trying to do something altogether uh, more um, uh, different and, and much more controversial. Um, uh, so as JK, just going back to November, Hong Kong in November 2018, as he leaves the stage, I mean... Uh, you were you were probably getting ready for your session, but what what did you, you obviously weren't satisfied with the quest with the answers he'd given to your question? I think he dodged a few other questions. I remember David Liu standing up and answering the first asking the first question from the floor, which was uh, He Jiankui, uh, what was the unmet medical need that you were trying to uh, address? And he he just didn't seem a, capable of. Uh, understanding the question in terms of the families that he had been working with, it was all about, you know, curing HIV in, across an entire country or continent almost. Um, so that that was uh, that that was interesting. Um, had you were you thinking, oh, this this is going in the book? Uh, had had the mutant project was it starting to crystallize? I, I honestly, I thought my book was done. I, I, was, I, was ready to, you know, I was ready to send it off to publishers. I'd, I basically, I'd written, I'd written a manuscript at that oh, point. Oh, right. Okay. And, uh, uh, so you were and, conflicted. Well, no, I was like, okay, this is time to really dig in. So, um, yeah, and I, I, I was able to, um, yeah, follow up later. But, you know, it's hard to reconstruct what I was thinking in the moment. Later, um, you know, he, he talked about, um, I, I came to kind of deconstruct that, that moment that, that yeah. happened at, at, at the summit. And, um, yeah, there, there was a lot of discussion of the, the medical needs. And, you know, uh, her or JK came up with kind of a post hoc um, explanation, um, pointing to some papers suggesting that, you know, people who live in households where there's an HIV positive member have, have some kind of, um, you know, risk of, of contracting the virus themselves. I don't think that's a particularly, um, you know, strong argument. And, and I also don't think it's justified by the literature, you know, along, along the way, you know, and I should say for starters, you know, for most people, HIV is not a medical problem anymore. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's um, if you have access to highly active antiretroviral medicine, um, you know, this is an infection that can be controlled. Your life expectancy is very similar to normal. Um, and now we know this is a relatively um, new clinical finding that if, if you're undetectable, if, if your medicine has reduced the level of HIV in your blood so that you can't pick it up with PCR, you're not gonna be able to transmit that virus to, to your partner, much less your child. 
Um, but when I later um, started to talk with um, some of the people intimately associated with the experiment, um, as I started to learn more about HIV in China, I realized that this was addressing a profound um, unmet social need. So um, in, in China, if, if you have HIV, um, you are living with serious stigma and shame, and um, you're likely going to keep it secret. Um, so, so in part, you know, one of one of my one of uh, JK's responses to my question was saying something about um, you know going forward how there can't um, he has to be very careful about um, this uh, the identities of everyone involved. It's it's mm. illegal to reveal um, the identity of someone who has HIV. So all, all the fathers who signed up for this experiment were, were HIV positive. Um, they were recruited through an organization called Baihua Lin in Beijing, uh, which is largely, um, it's run by gay and bisexual men. So in addition to living with the virus, they were living with, um, you know, very complicated sexual lives as, as well. Um, so, so I was trying to understand the motivations of the parents through this lived experience, and this is, you know, what anthropologists set out to do is understand the social context for these kind of things. Um, they really wanted a cure for HIV. They wanted to ensure that their kids um, wouldn't be infected with the virus. But um, more importantly, um, they were prevented by Chinese law from using reproductive technologies um, to safely have a child. So. Many of them just wanted a simple technique done, sperm washing. So if you undergo sperm washing, you know, you're not going to pass on the virus no matter what to, to your partner. Um, they wanted to undergo IVF, um, but those techniques are, are uh, banned, basically. If, if, if a fertility clinic offers those techniques to someone with HIV, the clinic might well lose its license. Wow. So, that that but was even part sperm of, washing is banned. That's even sperm washing is banned. Yeah. So so for many um, people living with HIV in China, um, they will uh, do reproductive tourism. They'll go to somewhere like Thailand, where there's not an issue, or the U.S. If you have a little bit more money, um, but the families who signed up for the experiment um, were prevented. Many of them were prevented from traveling because of their jobs. Um, one of the one of the people. Um, was a member of the military and you have to actually ask for a, a, a new like a separate passport and um, you know they would have had to justify why they needed to take this trip um, you know others couldn't afford the international travel um, and then yeah others were members of the communist party and they would have it's mm -hmm. not quite as as, as difficult um, as a party member as an active duty military member, but um, you know these these are some of the the social reasons why, you know, signing up for this experiment in their eyes was one of the only safe ways they could have a mm. child in China while living with HIV. Mm. You met with some of the uh, the patients or some of the volunteers uh, that that Ho Jiankui worked with. I, I spoke with them. Okay, right. Did you feel they had been in any way hoodwinked or coerced or misled? There's been a lot of smoke and a lot of allegations about, uh, you know, the, the, the ethical uh, malpractice of the, of the trial. Um, but some quotes uh, that I've read suggested, and I think you've touched on it, that they, they had nowhere else to go. And uh, HIV is such a stigma in China, evidently, that um, you can forgive them for wanting to explore any option that was 
presented to them? Yeah, so for starters, um, even though uh, JK dodged my question um, about the participant consent process, after learning a lot about it, and this was um, you know, looking at a PowerPoint presentation that the, there was a postdoc and an embryologist that initially met the couples in their own homes, um, I watched the video where um, you know two of the couples um, yep. had a long discussion uh, with with Dr. Ha and not just with Dr. Ha with Michael Deem of Rice University was was in the room um, yeah. and uh, a member of the Chinese National Academy of Sciences. Yeah, and the patients were asked, asking tough questions, and um, in fact, the first couple um, P one um, they didn't actually have a successful pregnancy. Um, but this was someone who was a medical professional himself, and he saw this experiment as, you know, something that was not only good for his family, but he understood how profound this was going to be uh, potentially for humanity if, if mm. it worked. Um, I would say that some of the others didn't have, you know, one, one shortcoming of the participant consent process was that the um, unprecedented nature of this experiment was not fully explained. I mean, the technical details were explained, but um, I don't think any of the couples who participated anticipated mm. the social reaction after mm. this. They didn't anticipate, you know, the, the literally billions of comments that mm. this attracted on Chinese social media, wow. many wow. of them negative, like Weibo, um, is is kind of like the Facebook of of, of China, and yeah, you know, yeah. Com comments stacked up there. Some of them very violent, um, uh -huh. you know, condemning them for right. participating. Um, so, so I don't think they were properly prepared for um, what a significant moment this was in scientific mm -hmm. history. They, you know, understood it to be an experiment with risks and benefits, and and I think the technical risks were adequately discussed and explained. And, um, you know, some of the questioning was, you know, will I get the, is there any chance that I'll get HIV from this? No. Um, you know, uh, others, others did ask about things like, like off target effects. So, you know, reasonably literate, um, as to the, the relevant issues. Um, let's see. So, you know, there, there were some shortcomings and, mm -hmm. um, I, I think one other shortcoming to the consent process, was overemphasizing the support that they had from the government. So in, in many ways, this was supported by the government, by the mm -hmm. Chinese Communist Party. And, and my book details um, the role of particular officials in Beijing, in Shenzhen, also in Hainan, um, that actively you know, supported this. And, and it, from the design stage, even. Um, yep. So, so in a sense, yes, it was supported, but you know, some of the PowerPoint slides gave the impression that this was funded by the government, and you know, there wasn't a clear grant proposal. Like, I'm going to do this experiment, and you know, it wasn't like that. The funds, you know, some of the funds he did have government funds. You know, he he was attracted back to Shenzhen from Stanford. Um, with the Peacock program, which is, um, you know, uh, a, a program about recruiting overseas Chinese talent. Oh, yeah. so, so, so there were there were funds from the municipal government in Shenzhen, there were funds from Beijing that, you know, helped establish his lab, the university that he was working at got government funds. Um, but it was it was misleading to basically put the government stamp uh, on, on the power, PowerPoint slides. 
Um, but I, sh I should also say, you know, one thing stood out as ethically remarkable um, that I haven't seen in any uh, participant consent form in a U.S. context or a European context. Uh -huh. um, so these these documents that were signed, um, you know, by by the patients and offered by the lab, guaranteed these children insurance plans for the first eighteen years of their lives. I've seen nothing like that in, in the U.S. That's that's extraordinary. And um, to me, you know, he could have <laughs> he he could have answered my question at the summit in the concrete saying like, yes, we've thought about the future of these children. Yeah. We're giving yeah. medical benefits. Um, <clears throat> but the the very tragic irony of, of that promise is that the, it was unfulfilled. Um, in yeah. part, it was unfulfilled because of the, you know, the scientific, political, social controversy. Um, but in a pragmatic sense, it was unfulfilled because the mm -hmm. insurance companies balked at offering a plan to these babies that were born seriously premature at 31 right. weeks. So, so I wanted to pick up on, on the <clears throat> uh, the babies, Lulu and Nana, as we know them, born in late October or early November 2018, prematurely, as you uh, report, um, and a rumored third child born six months later. Do we know anything about their health, their well-being, um, and what are the prospects for uh, the West or anybody learning or, or potentially even assisting in their in their future health and, and, and monitoring? So I know quite a bit about the health and well-being of Lulu okay. and Luna and, and their first you know days and weeks of life. Uh -huh. um, so when children are born, so so they were born at 31 weeks, you know, which is quite quite early. So usually um, if it's before 32 weeks, that's that's kind of a key moment. <laughs> if it's after 32 weeks, then things are, you know, reasonably good. Um, you know, you might not need as as intensive interventions, um, but just being born at 31 weeks is a highly significant, um, you know, seriously bad outcome. And, you know, in part, it's difficult to um, understand what resulted, you know, what produced that bad outcome. So twin pregnancies and IVF procedures um, uh, have known risks of, of producing premature births, premature births with complications. Um, so in the book, I leave it as an open question, you know, is this premature birth a result of these known risks of, of these established techniques or the unknown risks of CRISPR? Um, so when babies are born, they're given what's called an APGAR score. And, um, you're basically deducted points um, from from the score, uh, depending on the characteristics of uh, you know the health of, of of the newborn. And both babies initially had trouble breathing. Um, they were bluish in color. Um, they were put in the neonatal neonatal intensive care unit. Mm. Um, they had APGAR scores of eight, which you know, and this was reaffirmed. I, I just attended the Koji conference controversies and obstetrics and gynecology um, last week in Berlin. And this was reconfirmed um, by some senior members of the field that an APGAR score of eight ain't so bad. Um, but the videos that we saw on YouTube were profoundly misleading. 
and and this is i think the most serious and egregious ethical error that mm. that um dr hell made you know it, it was not announced in on these youtube videos where he claimed that they were born as healthy as any others mm. um he did not mention the premature birth um you know during his summit presentation it wasn't mentioned in the manuscripts that he submitted for publication mm. and it didn't come out in public until i reported this in my book um so yeah, for me, that's that's the most serious ethical question. And um, you know, as as to the health and well-being um, of the babies after this initial um, serious problem at birth, um, you know, by the time the summit happened, one of the one of the children was released from the hospital, was no longer in the neonatal intensive care unit, but one of them still was, which, you know, again, you know, the, as the news goes public, as healthy as any others, you know, profoundly yeah, right. misleading statement. And, um, you know, eventually they were both released and they were both released prior to, um, you know, uh, 42 weeks, which from talking to experts, that's a pretty good outcome in, in you know, neonatal health. Mm. Um, and I think the situation, you know, after they got home and, you know, up until now and moving forward is really complicated by, um, you know, the HIV status of, of the fathers um, by, uh, yeah, just not wanting to, um, have their identities made public. Um, like that's a particular concern of, you know, Lulu and Nana's parents that JK calls uh, Mark and Grace. Um, but I think all the parents involved in the study, no one wants to be publicly, you know, identified because right. they might right. lose their jobs. Um, I think for Mark and Grace and, um, you know, uh, the the third couple, and or sorry, the second couple that res yep. resulted in, in the third birth. That, that's not a rumor. I've I've got that confirmed on some good sourcing, and yep. um, you know that that pregnancy um, didn't result in an early birth. It it was as as I understand it, um, carried to full term. So there weren't the same health complications. Also gene edited at CCR five, correct? Also gene edited yep. at CCR five. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, part of what I describe in the book is um, disagreements that emerged along the way, disagreements between participants in the experiment and in the lab, but also disagreements within the lab about whether this should be safety first research um, mm. or, you know, just implant, implant, implant until mm. you get one to, to take. Mm. So that third pregnancy um, is, is a result of a disagreement between um, the, the uh, patients and, mm. and the laboratory members. Mm. And this was, um, I'd actually have to go back to the book and I can't remember if it's, I think it's after the birth. I, it, it, check my book, my book's, <laughs> my yeah. book's more accurate than my memory. Yeah. Um, but, but basically, you know, at a certain point, their embryos were with the hospital that performed the procedure. Um, you know, members of the lab were saying, we don't know some really fundamental questions about, mm. um, you know, the health and well-being of these, mm. these two newborns. Mm. But the parents really wanted a child, you know, like you have our embryos, we want to implant them. Yeah. So, um, you know, there were moments where, you know, some of the technicians disagreed with Dr. Ha. There was moments when, um, you know, some of the patients 
had disagreements. So, so it was what, what I tried to do is, is really reconstruct all of these different competing desires that, that yeah. came into play at, at, at these critical moments. So tell us about the highlights of your, your travels and reporting in China, which is something that of all the many other folks who've attempted to write books on, on CRISPR and the developers and the ethical implications uh, was something that nobody else um, uh, had. Uh, you visited JK's birthplace, I believe. Um, I'm also curious to hear about your thoughts on the, the AIDS village and what you've been able to glean about why, why He Jiankui, who had no prior record in gene editing uh, and had published one paper on CRISPR in a very abstract theoretical context during his PhD, what was there a tipping point that where he suddenly said, uh, I'm, I'm he was running a successful uh, sequence gene sequencing company that seemed to be taking go, taking off and raised a lot of money. Why suddenly flip and decide I want to make my mark as a, a human embryo editor? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So for starters, the rogue scientist story quickly fell apart when yeah. I yeah. visited uh, uh, mainland China. In part because you know many um, you know senior members of the Chinese National Academy of Sciences are also doing you know embryo editing experiments with with CRISPR Cas um, you know looking at conditions like beta thal thalassemia mm. um, you know Sun Yat-sen University um, made waves uh, a few years earlier mm -hmm. with you know a, a, a CRISPR experiment I, I visited Sun Yat-sen they they weren't actively you know going forward and uh, I, I met them in the, the somber days after <laughs> after yeah. the summit so I, I think yeah. you know, there, there was a lot of critical self-reflection yeah but also large public-private partnerships like um, BGI used to be known as Beijing Genomics Institute now it's just known by the acronym yeah this is a big facility in, in Shenzhen and I first visited a, a year before um, you know the the controversy erupted in 2018. And at that point, it was clear that, you know, this was all on the agenda. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, in, in this context, you know, JK saw a lot of people talking about the potential of CRISPR and, and the potential in reproductive technology and medicine. And, um, yeah, so, you know, you, you said that he, he didn't have a lot of experience, and, and you're right. I mean, he's a biophysicist, right? He... he has training in theoretical phys physics. Um, to be generous, he, he did write about CRISPR in his PhD, but um, from this really abstract theoretical um, point of view, um, he spent a year in um, Stephen Quake's lab in, in Stanford, but had very little, you know, I don't think he was like doing a lot of pipetting. I, I, I think, um, yep. you know, he was, he was part of a broader team. Yep. And when, when he was recruited back to Shenzhen, um, you know, initially, uh, Dr. Ha had had some challenges in, in trying to get funding. Like he, he was promised a lot by, um, you know, a, an influential um, uh, figure in, in the Chinese Academy, um, you know, someone who came and recruited him from Stanford. I, I, I know um, that his family wasn't um, particularly excited about leaving California at that time, but, you know, here comes this influential, um, you know, Chinese leader in, in academia yeah. and says, like, we'll give you this lab, it's going to be amazing. 
this is um you know basically a startup university that, mm. that was just sus tech know, right yeah sus, sus tech is is the un, un charismatic acronym <laughs> of where he worked. And, and the first president, you know, promised the moon, promised the stars, but when they got there, they were basically like eating in the student cafeteria, had substandard housing. Um, but then eventually, you know, the promises start to materialize. Right. Um, he, gets, he gets a lab, he gets fancy equipment, and he starts getting introduced around town to some of the the movers and shakers in, in the finance in, industry. And, um, you know, he, he takes the um, intellectual property from um, one of Stephen Quake's companies and, yep. you know, they make a deal and start uh, direct genomics and, you know, they're doing all right. Uh, I, I think some, some, some people were wondering, like, is there a there there? Is this like a, a, yep. a fancy plastic box that, yep. you know, might or might not work. And, and I think there's still those questions about direct genomics. As, as far as I can tell, they haven't been able to deliver on, you know, a lot of the orders that they've promised to suppliers. So that, that's an open question. You know, is, is this company going to offer an alternative to Illumina or, you know, mm -hmm. other more established mm -hmm. um, sequencing companies like, like BGI? And I think, you know, this, this is a guy who had high ambition and, um, this ambition was was fueled by, um, I think, the Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurial culture. Yep. You know, move fast and break things. I, I think you know some of his personal mentors have responsibility too, including Michael Deem, who was in the room when you know consequential matters were being discussed and decided, and patients were consenting. Michael Deem also does not have clinical trial, uh, clinical medicine experience. Um, and, you know, it seemed like a simple thing, right? You get the tech technicians with the experience in embryology, you know, you assemble a, a team with um, expertise and, um, you know, CRISPR um, guide RNA design, really not rocket science <laughs> yeah. in yeah. some ways. You, you know, he's taking two, two technologies and kind of bringing them together. And, yeah. um, I, in, in um, visiting the campus where he worked and talking to some of the faculty members, you know, we, we as, as university employees, we all often are invited to these like horrible presentations by our leadership, right? Where they have some kind of inspirational PowerPoints to show us. And um, one of the ones that, that um, not the first president who recruited him, but the second president um, who took over, um, he, he showed this picture of, um, you know, race cars, and one of the cars was cutting the other off of the pass, doing kind of this risky, daring maneuver. And the president's message to the faculty was like, be like that guy, take, take the risks, mm. you know, do, do, do the things that, you know, that um, other people are afraid mm. to do. Um, this this university had the aspirations of producing Nobel laureates, mm. and um, you know there's there's been a number of Nobel laureates from from China, and mm. and they've been very aggressively poaching distinguished scientists and, and scholars from around China and around the world. So that was the university culture that that he was you know brought into, yeah. and um, you know many of these institutions, many of the individuals, I, I think. Are also part of the story. Not to mention the complicated network of, of of hospitals and clinics and clinicians and technicians that were were involved. There were reports, Eben, that he in around about 2016 visited 
uh, a village in China, in rural China, known as the AIDS village. I wonder, it, was that? Do you think that was a a turning point in his uh, decision to to move into this uh, uh, in, in, into the embryo editing arena? Uh, so he was already in the embryo editing arena and okay. had identified a different target. So yep. initially, so he had CRISPR, he had IVF and, you know, hammers <laughs> looking for yep. nails. Yep. And his initial, his initial nail um, was, was a gene related to um, cholesterol. Um, PCSK9 he, is that? Yeah, PCSK9. Yep. So that, that's what he was set on. And, you know, one of the, this is also a story about one of his mentors in the communist party. Um, so uh, Bingwen, uh, Bingwen uh, again, read my book. Don't, don't, don't trust my memory. Um, he's, he's the vice uh, governor, uh, or, or sorry, the vice mayor of Shenzhen. So, okay. so like the deputy mayor, like some, someone who's a mover and shaker, you know, that might not sound like much, but imagine like number two in Silicon Valley in terms of elect, local elected officials. So, you know, uh, uh, a big deal locally on the national scene in China, not like, you know, someone extremely influential in the Chinese Communist Party. So, so it's, it's, it's this official's idea that, you know, JK needs to go see these, these places where earlier um, missteps um, resulted in the proliferation of AIDS. So basically JK goes there, he meets all these people impoverished who are, are living with stigma, living with HIV, living some, some instances living with AIDS as, as medic, medicine is, is challenging to access sometimes in, in rural areas. But he also hears about this, um, this blood selling scheme in the eighties that resulted, it's not just one village, but there's a whole bunch of villages where this happened. Um, there's a great fiction book um, about this um, that, I, that I kind of engage with in, in my book as well. Um, so, so yeah, basically it was these get rich, skip, get rich quick schemes that proliferated mm. where people, um, entrepreneurs came into these rural villages said, you know, like, give us your blood, we're going to pay you. And, and people were making a lot more than they could make by, you know, farming in the fields, yeah. Yeah. but, um, they weren't sterilizing the equipment and yeah, basically whole, whole villages started mm. to die. So, you know, JK thinks that he's got a tool that can solve this problem. And you know, he's a techno-optimist, again, someone without clinical experience, without any experience in reproductive medicine. Um, and he tries to implement it. And you know, he enlisted some collaborators um, who I name in the book, Sean Zhang among them, who, who do have um, clinical experience and um, you know, gynecology, embryology, IVF. Mm. And, you know, I, I think a, a poor decision was made just, you know, like, should we be implanting one embryo at a time or two? Like, that's, that's a pretty basic thing. And if, if you talk to, like, it, it's, it's shifting in the field, but, um, you know, most of the, the, the latest, you know, reproductive clinics are not doing this. And, you know, having twin pregnancies is greatly enhancing the risks of, of a bad outcome. So, this could have been a much happier story, you know, if there weren't twins and, and you know, one, one boy or girl was born with um, a homozygous condition, um, you know, that, that would be an easier story to tell. Yeah. But instead, it's, it's a more complicated story about this premature birth. And we, yeah. at this point, don't know why. 
Yeah. As he was presenting in 2018, uh, as the news uh, swept the world, he was also trying to get a big paper published in a prestigious scientific journal, uh, large excerpts of which were leaked uh, and published, uh, posted online uh, maybe a year later. Did you did you study that and, and gl glean anything from that that you didn't already? Um, the sort of hubris is one thing that I think stands out. I wonder if you agree. Yeah, the hubris. I, so I did get a chance to review the the, mm. the manuscripts um, mm. in their various drafts, and and uh, you know, in part, uh, the the authorship shifted, and I think that's telling. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you know, people who were involved, including Michael Deem, um, sought to take credit at, at a moment um, when it seemed like an auspicious um, opportunity, and then sought to distance themselves um, yeah. from, from from the experiment. And yeah, I think the other thing is, is just that omission. You know, um, if, if there was a complicated clinical outcome, like that's routinely reported in papers. And, you know, you can, you can report that and, you know, try to reckon with it. But um, that omission, yeah. And, and the other serious um, problem with that paper and, and the whole enterprise um, was that in the weeks after the birth of these two children, um, JK was really not focused on the science. He, he was focused on business deals. And um, so, so the basic experiment to see if these, these two babies are in fact resistant in some way to HIV, mm -hmm. that, that was never done. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that's remarkable that that's not in the paper. Mm -hmm. So there, there were um, blood samples taken at birth, um, cord blood, um, and it was stored in a fridge at his university in Shenzhen. And then when he was taken to jail, you know, that that experiment was never done. But he was also in those those weeks, um, you know, in between the birth and the summit, he was jet setting. You know, he was he was trying to set up a new clinic in, in Hainan, um, this, this medical tourism zone of China. Mm. Um, he had support of the governor's office, and uh, he, he wanted to have this be the place where, you know, doctors from around the world would come to train, where people would come to do medical tourism if a, they wanted. A CRISPR clinic. Yes, a, yeah. a CRISPR and many other things. It, it was yeah. in partnership with Zhang Zhang, as I report in the book. And uh, uh, yeah, they, they were going to do everything from, you know, um, mitochondrial uh, therapies that Zhang Zhang has tried out in other contexts yeah. um, to uh, CRISPR germline yeah. edit. That's, that's what was in this proposal yeah. that was presented to the governor's office. Do you have any reporting to indicate, as you say, he's now two thirds of the way through a three year uh, prison sentence. Do you have any reporting um, or insights to indicate that he's remorseful in any way? Uh, yes, I, th I think he is profoundly remorseful. Um, I think he's totally surprised by, you know, the public reaction yeah. and the scientific reaction and, and the legal consequences. And it's not been easy. So, um, you know, initially he was in a black site. He was taken basically all of a sudden. Um, a letter was left in his place. Um, his, his wife, you know, encountered it after he stopped responding to his, his cell phone messages. Um, the black site, in fact, was uh, in, in many ways better than, than the you know, prison that he eventually um, was put into. I, I've been told that um, the prisoners have to take turns standing and sleeping because they're so crowded. So this is not any kind of, um, you know, luxury. White collar kind of 
Yeah. No, this is, and here, here goes the police. <laughs> <laughs> Well-timed. Yeah. Um, of course, so a lot of uh, uh, panels and commissions have been formed in the aftermath of uh, the, 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 the JK uh scandal, I'll call it. Um, the most recent of which, perhaps one of them, supposedly the most prestigious and important was the World Health Organization report earlier, published in the first half of 2021, a big international panel, 18 months of deliberations. Um, do you think we're any, did you get any, did you see any um, tangible, constructive progress or insights from that, uh, from those deliberations? Are we any, any closer to figuring out how we should proceed as a community? So, so a lot of the scientists at the summits and at, on these commissions have expressed profound optimism about consensus. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. As an anthropologist who studies, you know, social and political formations, uh, I'm pessimistic that <laughs> we're going to have any kind of agreement. You know, there's a number of, of very important issues that um, there should be global consensus about, you know, climate change, for example, and, and this, is, this is another one. And I, I think, you know, what we see from these reports is, um, you know, we, we don't have clear rules for the road. Um, a sense is that something should be done, um, that, you know, the different, different countries should enact legislation. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon in, in any kind of coherent, coordinated way. Um, this is happening in a very contingent and piecemeal kind of way. So um, in many ways, you know, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, society will continue to influence science as it did in this profound way in Hong Kong. Um, you know, this, this was a moment where, as David Baltimore, you know, one of the conveners of the yep. summit said, you know, science has failed to govern itself. And coming from Baltimore, who's been a champion of that idea for decades, yeah. that was profoundly meaningful. So, you know, I, I think people are still going to have a, a, a broad range of very diverse and strong opinions about this issue. And, um, you know, I, I think it should be taken from the scientific community as like, you need to be thinking about these issues as you... Yeah imagine a project as you write a proposal and as it goes forth into a clinic. Yeah, you mentioned uh, JK's, before he was incarcerated at least, uh, interest in setting up a CRISPR clinic. Is that still a fear or a concern that you have? That somebody else, perhaps whether in China or elsewhere, despite all of the, um, if not a consensus, a, a near consensus that this is premature, this is no medical benefit, um, but that's not necessarily going to prevent everybody or, or deter, deter everybody, is it? Yeah, I, I did an internet search, I'd say it was probably about a year and a half ago um, yeah. for, you know, just like CRISPR IVF. And uh -huh. I, I landed on a clinic in Cyprus and um, uh, I've, you know, reached out to them and, um, you know, kind of went silent for a little bit. But yeah. um, just a couple of weeks ago, they wrote me back and and I asked, um, you know, can I get CRISPR IVF treatments at your clinic? And um, uh, I could look and see exactly what they wrote, but basically they're like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, again, this isn't rocket science. And, and, and I would actually be surprised, you know, if, if you look at the birth of Louise Brown yeah. um, and then look to see what happened in, in India a few months after 
the birth of Louise Brown, you see that IVF emerged simultaneously in, in two very different national contexts, scientific cultures. And I would actually be surprised if it's just these three yeah. babies at this point from, from yeah. JK's lab. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know, check Cyprus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I have no idea if this is just like an over-enthusiastic marketing specialist who knows yeah. nothing about what they're talking about or, or if there is a there there. I mean, someone designed a website that put CRISPR and IVF together and yeah. there's someone responding to my messages saying that, yes, you can do it here. We focused on um, hereditary genome editing, which was a big, a major theme um, in your book, which clearly had to be rewritten uh, <laughs> uh, or, or reshaped uh, back in 2018. Um, in, our, in our closing few minutes, Seven, tell us about some of the other themes and uh, characters in, in the Mutant Project. Yeah, so, so it's a, a wide range of characters and, and, and exploring some of the same themes that, that you do in, in your book, Kevin. So, um, you know, one of the most important perspectives I found was the dis disability um, community, the disability studies community. So yeah. I, I feature um, a biochemist named Gregor Wolbring, um, and he has a body that's very different from ours. And um, he, he sees himself as part of the diversity of humanity. He doesn't want to walk like the rest of us, but he says, like, maybe flying would be interesting. So if there's that possibility, I'd consider it. Um, but he's also worried that technologies like CRISPR are going to edit people like him out of existence. And um, I, I, that's a, almost a verbatim quote from some, someone yeah. in, in your book, I believe. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, his mom took thalidomide when she was pregnant. And, you know, there's thousands of people born like him around the world. And, and he recognizes that, um, you know, he has relative privilege. He has a university position. He has, you know, all kinds of technologies in his life that, that make it um, possible for him to navigate the world. Um, so so I, I take, you know, perspectives like, like his very seriously. Um, I spend a chapter in Indonesia, and in part that's because, you know, I've got the language skills, that's where I worked on my first book, and um, there, you know, the, the, the landscape is wildly different, um, you know, on, on the way from the airport to, to meet this artist, Tamara Pertamina, you pass all kinds of advertisements for, you know, um, chemical treatments that are going to enhance your sexual potency to things that are going to make you taller um, to, you know, in, in the clinic, you can get um, skin lightening treatments that are outlawed elsewhere because they're so toxic and dangerous. And, you know, in this landscape, um, eugenic features are very clear. Um, so it's, it's clear that, you know, people would want to choose a future where they're more attractive, they're more beautiful. And, and those ideas of attractiveness and beauty are shaped by histories of colonialism, not only, um, you know, European colonialism, they mm. lived under the Dutch for a while, and mm. um, lighter skinned people were afforded all kinds of opportunities. But also in, in relation to places like China and East Asia, um, where, you know, K-pop stars and you know the, the new internet celebrities are all lighter skinned so so i think um in places like indonesia you, you know there's not a lot of ivf clinics there i don't think this is going to be something that is going to crop up anytime soon but this this artist um had a project that she called the the crispr sperm bank and um you know what if you could design a cheap and easy reagent that would you know genetically modify some proportion of sperm. You know, we know that these tools aren't entirely efficient, 
But yeah, I mean, people living in the slums of Jakarta, Indonesia might be up for a gamble to, you know, just test it out and see what's possible. Well, uh, the book, uh, The Mutant Project, is it's a must read. Um, uh, and in closing, Eben, uh, what, what's the subject of the next book? Uh, I've got viruses on the brain right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the, You've been like publishing on COVID-19, I, I see. So yeah, tell us about I'm, that. Well, I'm actually getting interested in, in what we might call good viruses. So uh -huh. it, it turns out if you do metagenomic sequencing of the human body, you discover that places that were imagined to be sterile, like your cerebral spinal fluid or, or your, you know, your, your blood, it's teeming with viral biodiversity that we barely understand. So, you know, I, I got into it, you know, because we're living in a pandemic and everyone's talking about viruses. Um, I'm interested in coronaviruses, uh, less in SARS-CoV-2, um, although, you know, of course I have to live with it like everybody else. Yeah. But it, it turns out um, there was all kinds of coronavirus and, you know, SARS-CoV coronavirus biodiversity in Southern China and Southeast Asia, according to serology data, um, you know, well before the pandemic. So things walking around with spike proteins that look, that walk and talk remarkably a lot like SARS-CoV-2, but a pandemic didn't happen then. Mm. So, so I'm interested in, yeah, um, how people coexist with viruses. And uh, maybe my provocative assertion is that, uh, you know, we can't, um, separate ourselves socially or separate ourselves ecologically um, from viral biodiversity very long. And um, in many cases, that kind of separation might not be a good thing. So if, mm. if we try to eradicate viruses from the world, first of all, we wouldn't be able to do it. I'm pretty convinced. But, um, you know, we might start seeing all sorts of pathologies. So we, there's a great literature about the microbiome, you know, mm -hmm. the bacteria in our guts. Um, and it turns out that, yeah, uh, phage are in there influencing the microbiome. And I imagine if, you know, we have a virome that is um, not as diverse, you know, that, that, that might be something that also leads to pathology. It, again, it's very early days. I'm just, you know, starting to dip my toe into these waters. But um, yeah, broadly, I'm, inter I'm interested in what we might call good or symbiotic viruses. That's great. Well, we look forward to seeing that project uh, uh, evolve ha, uh, over the next few years. Uh, Eben Kirksey, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Guideposts today. Eben is the author of The Mutant Project, published by St. Martin's Press, and a must-read for all uh, CRISPR uh, aficionados and people interested in the history and uh, future of genome editing. I'm Kevin Davis. For everyone at the CRISPR Journal, thanks for joining us, and goodbye for now. Great. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, Evan.